Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this second series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to continue with our series of guest interviews, talking to friends and professional acquaintances from across the worlds of music, dance, theater, and the humanities about why and how they do what they do. Steve Waxman is the Elsie Irwin Sweeney Professor of Music and also Professor of American Studies at Smith College. He's a scholar of U.S. popular music and popular culture with particular specialty in the study of live music, music genres, music technology, and musical instruments, especially the guitar. He's the author of two award-winning books with more in the pipeline. They include Instruments of Desire, The Electric Guitar and the Shaping of Musical Experience, and This Ain't the Summer of Love, Conflict and Crossover in Heavy Metal and Punk. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. We like to start these guest episodes by inviting people like yourself to reflect upon how the idea of the vernacular, whatever that word connotes to you, how that intersects with your own work. But before we get to that, maybe we could start out by asking you about your day job, as it were, and about the life events that have brought you to that gig. Uh, sure. So as you, you know, as you said in my introduction, and thank you for that introduction, Roger, um, my day job is uh, teaching music and American studies at Smith College. And, uh, you know, on some level, my path here was like what any academics path is, which is like, I went to college, uh, in my case at UC Berkeley, I majored in history. Um, and I was especially interested in cultural history, or I think at the time I was thinking of it more as intellectual history. Cultural history was kind of more of an emerging field almost. This was back in the late 80s. Um, but either way, I was interested in the history of ideas and the history of how ideas turned into things that were influential and had an impact on the way people thought and the way people made decisions about the world. Um, but I was also very much interested in culture and the arts. And as a senior undergrad history major, I wound up writing an honors thesis about Ornette Coleman, the jazz musician. And that was my first ever time doing music writing. But this is where I guess the story becomes more than just like, this is what I majored in in college. Cause I'd been a guitarist at that point since I was like nine years old. And I had been, the kind of music fan from a pretty young age who didn't just want to like listen to the top 40, but wanted to kind of dig deeper into like finding music that I haven't heard of before and that other people might not have heard of before. So I would read music criticism, whether it would be in the daily newspaper or whether it would be in Rolling Stone magazine or whatever. And I started searching for more obscure albums and I started learning to play music that was you know, a little bit more off the beaten path. Um, and at a certain point, I realized that that was something I wanted to do academically. Um, I did that as a history major. So I like was not in school as a music student. I never got a music degree. Uh, you know, when I transitioned into graduate school, um, I was still studying history and um I decided after a detour onto some other material for my master's degree that I wanted to write a music-based doctoral thesis, which I decided would be on the history of the electric guitar because my enthusiasm for the guitar had 
remained ongoing. And I read a lot, you know, I, re- I subscribed to Guitar Player Magazine. I had a lot of the kind of coffee table book histories of the guitar. And I felt like there was room to do something more substantial. More, I mean, some of those coffee table books are really good. Um, but there was a certain way of discussing the electric guitar that I felt I wasn't seeing. And, um, there was some really exciting work being done in music studies at that time. Like this is now like early nineties. Um, you know, like the, the time when I started, uh, really working on my PhD topic in earnest uh, Robert Walzer's Running with the Devil just came out around that time. Susan McClary's Feminine Endings just came out. Like there was all this really exciting new musicology. And I was a history student, but I was like tuning into that stuff and being like, I think I want to do work that's kind of like this. And I didn't have the musical training to do some of the more squarely analytical theoretical part of that. But I certainly had the base of listening and playing to feel like I had something to say about an instrument that I cared about and tell a story about it that maybe hadn't been told quite the same way. And so that's how I wound up getting into that. And I did ultimately shift programs and I I moved from the history department at University of North Carolina to the American Studies program at University of Minnesota. And that's where I finished up my PhD on the history of the electric guitar. And and then that became my first book. so, you know, that's a kind of condensed version of the trajectory of how I got here. Um, and I've, I've continued apace ever since. Um, yeah, that actually sets up something for me, if I can jump in here, because I, I wanted to talk about the, the book that, be, that came from your dissertation about instruments of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always appreciate the name check of Robert Walser and Susan McClary on this podcast because they were certainly formative in the way that that I thought about writing about not just popular music, but also musics which we think of as more, you know, art music. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that's great about McClary's book is that she talks about Madonna and she also talks about Laurie Anderson and she also talks about Baroque opera. So let's let's, if we could, could we delve a little deeper into the like the thesis of the Instruments of Desire book? You know, how do we think about the history of the electric guitar? And how do you argue that we might think about it differently or in a more nuanced or rich or enlightening fashion? Well, at the time that I started working on the book, I think my sense was that a lot of the literature that was out there, you know, again, like mostly journalistic type work, some of it very deep in terms of the level of knowledge and research. But a lot of it really revolved around a kind of canon building, right? Like either a canon of great guitarists, whether that be Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page or whomever, or whether that be a canon of great guitars, which is another kind of canon. But I think that is also another really important kind of canon. Instruments themselves have their own histories and trajectories and the value that's assigned to them. And, you know, it's not like I did, it's not like I completely like threw out that established sense of what mattered about the electric guitar in pursuing the project that I did. I I wrote about a lot of the most well-known players. I wrote about a lot of the most well-known guitar models. Um, But I didn't take their greatness for granted. I think that was one of the things that set the work I was doing apart, or at least that was one of the things I was trying to do differently was that rather than just say, you know, Jimi Hendrix is great and thus we should understand and appreciate his greatness. I tried to ask some deeper questions about like, what does an artist like Jimi Hendrix mean? Like how was he playing upon certain aspects of American culture that made the electric guitar have an impact that went beyond just that, like, he's a great musician, you know? And so to ask questions about race, to ask questions about sexuality, to ask questions about power relationships, uh, which are always embedded in those things. Um, also to think about technology as something that isn't just a sort of, um, idle source of fascination or, or just a sort of given, 
you know, that facilitates the genius of great musicians, but, but that itself has a kind of momentum to it, you know, which partly is a sort of economic momentum, right? Like there's money to be made in developing innovative technology or innovative products. Um, but it's also, I think the fascination with technology is part of what feeds into the evolution of an instrument like the guitar and the electric guitar specifically, right? I mean, what distinguishes an acoustic guitar from an electric guitar? Well, it's electric, but what does that mean, right? Like, what does it mean to invoke electricity as something that has a particular value? That was a big question that I was trying to ask and get some sense of an answer to. And it's still something that I find a really fascinating thing to reflect on. When I read the book a few years ago, I and this may be off base, but I'm just going to tell you what my impression of it was. I had the impression of watching a relay, a cultural relay mm. from each of the individuals that you profiled in the book. Um, they weren't literally handing off, but in some ways they were handing to the the, the next person in the narrative mm. um, what what they had innovated and and what uh, technology had been developed and how listening had developed and how recording had developed. And, and you did a beautiful job of, of weaving that all together. And then you have this narrative thread from one individual to another. You told the, the history of the electric guitar in, uh, I should have looked at it this morning. I don't remember how many chapters there were, but seven, um, seven. Okay. Um, in seven profiles of seven influential musicians, but who are also cultural ch change agents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the change agent part is really crucial, I think. But also, I really like what you're talking about with Relay, because, I mean, to get back to Chris's question about what the vernacular means, I think part of what the vernacular means to me is a level of, I mean, it's talk, right? It's conversation. Uh, and so to see that, like, guitarists or people working in any cultural field are having a, a dialogue or a conversation with each other. And I think that's one of the things that you see when you look at history a certain way, you know, when you look at like the electric guitar and think about it as a certain kind of historical trajectory, that this isn't a bunch of isolated musicians who are just working in their little like vacuum tubes, but that, you know, that there is stuff that's being passed on. And sometimes it's very direct, you know, sometimes they've actually like encountered each other. Um, sometimes it's more about like, just having a sense that they have that there's a language that's already been put into play that they want to adapt for themselves and extend and refine um, and and maybe even change, right? The change agent part is like, they might want to not just reproduce that language, but they might want to reinvent it. Um, and so the vernacular is in some ways like that inherited language, but it's also the field that allows for inheritance to become the basis of transformation at the same time. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that because it is something that I took away from your book as well. And, and it does, you're absolutely right. In, in my estimation, it does link up to the idea that the vernacular is about conversation. And it's not just about conversation in language. It's about conversation between and among cultural ideas mm -hmm. and cultural moments. And it's even about conversation between and among multiple generations of thinking, especially thinking that exists outside of print culture or beyond or parallel to. There's a, there's a, American music scholar named uh, Walt Lehman, Rip Lehman, oh, yeah. who wrote a really terrific book about minstrelsy and one about specifically about, there's a concept he uses. And again, he comes from outside of music, so he's not sort of burdened with technical musical expectations or terminology. And he's mostly talking about movement and he calls in the African-American tradition, he refers to certain body vocabularies as kind of lore cycles. And I think there's an element of that that goes on with lots of aspects of expressive culture, especially expressive culture that gets shut out of or left out of print histories. And I'm thinking now of literally of the lore of the electric guitar. Yeah. And I think there's lore on a lot of different levels, right? I mean, like what you're describing, um, and I know Rip's work well. He actually was a, 
a colleague for a very, very short time here at Smith. He had a visiting gig, so we were lucky enough to have him around for a couple of years. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you look at, for instance, the way in which T-Bone Walker's ways of performing with his body in a guitar performance link up with the ways that Jimi Hendrix does the same. Um, or the ways in which one musician bends a string and then how another musician bends a string in ways that are maybe complementary, but like the vibrato is just a little bit different. I mean, the micro details are not things I get lost in as a writer, but like as a player, you that's absolutely what you tune into. And I do think that that is very much about the sort of dialogue that happens on a very kind of everyday level as musicians just sort through what being a musician means for them um, on a very personal level. But, you know, it's never just strictly individual because you're always playing music as part of a culture, even if you're not consciously doing that. The sheer fact that you might play somebody else's song means you're engaging in cultural work. Um, And so, as you say, it's not just about language in the most surface level definition of that, you know, like how one fingers a note is a kind of language or is, is another way of speaking. Um, and, and those kinds of things I think matter a lot for getting at the heart of how culture works at the level beyond that's just what people say about it. Yeah. I just, you mentioned vibrato and I just, for a moment, I flashed on a short anecdote um, that Stevie Ray Vaughan once supplied, um, the much missed Stevie Ray. Uh, and he talked about when he was first recruited to play for David Bowie. Now, the, as a blues head, as a Bowie fan, imagining those two uh, change agents independent of one another, I think, are you mm -hmm. kidding? I, I mean, Bowie had fantastic ears for great musicians, but but after these other players, I mean, what? What's going on here, Right. And Stevie Ray, who was a very canny individual, although he had his a kind of whole Texas blues man persona, he said, well, you know, I went to the first rehearsal with David and I couldn't really figure out what to play. So I thought, I'm just going to play Albert King licks because Albert goes with everything. And then when I read that and then I went back and listened to the Bowie tracks, like iconically Let's Dance, mm -hmm. I thought... By God, that's true. Those are Albert mm -hmm. King licks. And it just, it was a wonderful illustration of the um, intentionality and the sort of the encyclopedic knowledge that players can bring of the vocabularies from which they are drawing. And that's what communication is, right? To be able to take the language you have and use it to communicate, perhaps in an idiom which would be on the surface quite unfamiliar, like Stevie Ray playing Albert King licks over David Bowie tracks. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one other thing that comes up from that anecdote, and it, it was something I was thinking about as I was talking about, you know, the ways in which things transmit is um, I've always taken very seriously that the artists I work on or the people I work on, they're not always artists, you know, but the figures that I work on and that I write about are very analytical about what they do, even if they're not educated in the way that allows them to speak in a more formal uh, language about what they do. But that, you know, whether it's Jimi Hendrix or whether it's Muddy Waters or whether it's um, the members of Metallica or whomever, like musicians have a language, they have to have a language of, about what they do. And sometimes that language might be very specific and material, you know, like it might be a lot of it about equipment, you know, and that gets back to like why the guitar matters. Cause it's like what, what acts you play makes a big difference and what amp you play and all of that stuff, right? What cable you use. I mean, who knows? Some people put a lot of stock in a lot of very small details. Um, but I think it, Sometimes, um, and especially around the time that I was starting to do the work that I was doing on the guitar, you know, you'd read the guitar magazines where you'd get these musicians making really elaborate explanations much of the time for how they do what they do. And then 
like nobody was capturing that to my mind in any kind of like more critical work or, or scholarly work where, you know, it wasn't just about mapping a bunch of theory onto like, this is what musicians do. And I did some of that too. I mean, you know, I didn't avoid theory, but, but I also really wanted to hear the musicians. I, I put a lot of stock in what the musicians said about their own work. And that has always continued to be really important for me. Um, because I think there's a kind of theoretical language, if you want to call it that, that comes from the practice of doing what they do, you know, and it's not academic theory and it doesn't need to be. But I think in a lot of ways, it has a lot more explanatory power than what academic theory does. So that's another way in which the vernacular might come into play, right? Because it's like that vernacular voice that musicians bring to developing a critical language of this is how I play what what I play and this is why I play that way. So, Steve, we've talked about this before a couple of times, not at not at length, but I've um, I've proposed to you the idea that, um, well, I, I I was thinking of the musician David Torn, mm. who once said in an interview. Um, it's not just the guitar, it's the guitar and the amp. And if you don't play the amp too, you're not playing the instrument, which I think is kind of a provocative statement. Um, and so when I asked you about that a few years ago, um, I was wondering if you thought it would be helpful to, to view the pair as a system. Mm -hmm. And if you thought maybe there was a, um, a story to be told about the amplifier that would be similar to the story that you told in Instruments of Desire. Like to know well, it's it's fortuitous or whatever that you ask that because um, you know I'm finishing this big book right now on the history of American live music, and I'm not entirely sure what my next move is going to be. Although I should mention, and this is a bit of a sidebar, but not entirely off point, I am gonna I am co-editing um, a Cambridge Companion to the Electric Guitar. Um, that's going to be like it's almost under contract, so. Uh, and and there are going to be a couple of chapters that I think get at precisely the kinds of issues your question is asking about. Uh, like I made a point of commissioning in a, a chapter about amplification, for instance. Um, so I think amplification is essential to the story of the electric guitar. I think it's essential not just to the story of the electric guitar. I think it's essential to the story of American music and public life. Um, and and. You know, I hesitate to even say this out loud in the context of this podcast, but um, it's likely that my next big book project will be a history of amplification, not just guitar amplification, but amplification more generally as a cultural phenomenon, because it's a history that hasn't been written at all, as far as I know. Uh, it's been written in bits and pieces, and there are scholars who've done some interesting pieces of that work. Um, but even like something like the microphone, such a basic fundamental piece of, you know, how much time did we spend getting the mic settings right before we even started this conversation, right? Um, there's not like the one stop, like, here's a book on the microphone that you just know that you're supposed to read if you want to start to understand the ways in which technology has affected our experience of sound. That history needs to be told. Um it definitely has a specific significance for the electric guitar as well. There's no question. Um, and not just the amp, but also all the effects that have been created that are sort of a byproduct of amplification, but are now have a kind of their own independent life as well and their own independent kind of sector of the music instrument economy. Um, there's interestingly a lot more people doing work on the effects part of things right now than on the amplifier part of things. It's like effects have suddenly become sexy. Uh, and I think it's because, and this may, this may be true in your guitar world that you live in. It's very true in my guitar world that I live in that, um, so many of the younger guitarists and maybe not so younger guitarists I meet nowadays, like live through their board, right? Their pedal board. Um, and so much about guitar playing now is about sound shaping and not it's let, you know, like being able to play in a more kind of conventionally, technically competent way or even virtuosic way might still have some value. But most of the players I meet now, that's not their main concern. Their concern is with how can I get a certain sound? 
Um, and so I, I see that being like absolutely critical. And it's interesting that that's now something that I see being reflected in the work that younger scholars are producing as well, where they're starting to pay a lot of attention to the ways in which musicians interact with their pedals and interact with the options that they have for shaping timbre. Um, so yes, I think there's a lot more work to be done there. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to maybe do a little more of it myself. Great. I'm looking forward to that. And this provides a really great segue to the, the book that you've just completed because I've, I've been following your posts on, uh, Facebook about this, um, the history of live performance. And part of that, that you covered, and maybe you'll talk a little bit about it is the development of the large scale, uh, sound system. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not doing as much concerted work on that issue as some other folks are. There's a, there's a guy, for instance, named Sergio Peaceville, um, who's really devoting his, his work to the development of live sound. And, and I think we'll be having a book on that coming out at some point. I'm not sure where he's at in the um, progress of that. Um, but it's definitely an important part of the story. I mean, you know, it's sort of uh, obvious, but yet, it's one of those obvious points you need to make, which is that you don't get um, music festivals as we know them or arena and stadium concerts as they've become so routine without amplification of a certain scale. Uh, and it took a while for the folks who work sound to figure out how to work sound on that scale. Um, so the, the main story I tell, and, and it's somebody whose story is now getting told a lot more frequently uh, than it used to be is this guy, Bill Hanley, uh, who was the sound guy at Woodstock most famously. But I mean, I actually find his pre Woodstock career, the more fascinating when he's working at the Newport folk and jazz festivals, you know, he was the guy who was doing sound when Bob Dylan went electric, even though, um, Joe Boyd, the music producer claims he was doing the sound, but I don't believe Joe Boyd. I believe Bill Hanley. Um, and, uh, he, he, he was one of the, I, I sometimes like to refer to him as like the zealot of the sort of live music industry of the mid 20th century. Cause he was involved in almost every major event that you can think of. And yet who knows his name? Now there was just a very comprehensive book about Bill Hanley that was just published by a guy named John Kane. Uh, so I want to give him some credit too, because that book is like impressively detailed and he had a lot of access to Hanley's personal files and, information and interviewed Hanley at length. And so, um, again, like for me, that's like a part of the story, but it's a start part of the story that matters hugely. And that, um, I, I'm glad to see more and more people are sort of taking on as a thing that we need to know more about. Um, I want to ask you a question about Hanley. Um, Several years ago, I was working in Nashville and was talking with one of the engineers who'd been working there since the mid sixties. And he was talking about the guys who mm. had trained him, who'd been there since the fifties, uh, and the late forties that they had their background mm. in radio. The first, the first engineers of, of Nashville, as we know it as a recording powerhouse, uh, were live sound guys from radio. And then they adapted into the studios to make records. What was Hanley's background? What did he, how, how did he get to uh, where he got with developing uh, these it wasn't sound systems? Through radio, interestingly. I mean, I can totally see that being a path. Um, he was really kind of an electronics repair guy. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember. So, I, like, it's been a little bit since I've dug deep into his personal narrative. Uh, I can't remember like if he was somebody who did ham radio, he might've been, cause that's such a common um, thing that a lot of people who wind up working in audio technology do. Uh, but he was not like primarily a radio guy. He definitely didn't work in a radio studio or anything like that. Uh, he worked at electrical repair uh, and he was really interested from early on in um sound quality like as a public thing uh like i do remember this one really kind of funny anecdote he tell tells often in interviews where um he used to go ice skating as a kid 
And there was a skating rink that had this like amazing giant organ that they would play, you know, to accompany the skaters. And he was like the sound at this rink with the organ was like the best sound he had ever heard. And that was basically what he aspired to reproduce as a sound guy, you know? So that gives you a sense of like where his audio sensibility was shaped. It's, it's, it's not like the standard narrative. Um, and, uh, it's not very rock and roll. That's for sure. Um, but he wasn't a rock and roll guy either. And I think that's actually really kind of useful to know, you know, I mean, he worked mainly for a long time with the folk and jazz festivals and he definitely facilitated the growth of the kinds of sound systems that became associated with live rock, but it was never his main comfort zone. Like he would, he would complain about the rock bands being too loud. Um, and he would like accommodate them because they were paying him and because he knew that he had to, but he was the kind of sound engineer that like preferred the cleaner sound that preferred things to be, um, you know, a little bit like, I mean, in the electric guitar book, I write about Les Paul and how Les Paul liked that clean sound, right? Like the pure sound. He didn't want all the distortion. I think a lot of audio engineers have that same sensibility. Uh, I mean, you read that a lot when you read interviews with people like Buddy Guy, for instance, who talk about being in the recording studio wanting to get the sound on record that they had when they were playing in clubs. And these recording engineers would be like, um, no, you can't do that. That like pushes things too much into the red. And we, we don't want our records to sound like that. Um, but, you know, I think that's one of the things that really separated the, um, the people that succeeded in live sound from their audio, from their record studio, audio engineering counterparts was that, these guys had to, I think at an earlier date, really adapt to live sound had to sound a certain way. And it wasn't the way it was going to sound in the studio. Like the studio was not the appropriate model for how things were going to sound live. So you had to have a different audio sensibility for what live sound should sound like. And Hanley, I think, was one of the first people to really develop that to have a sense that like doing live sound engineering and live sound production was a whole thing unto itself. And you couldn't just map the standards from another type of audio work onto it. Yeah. And it seems like that actually works mm -hmm. back and forth, right? I'm, there's so many things that are interesting about what you've laid out here, but you know, you mentioned the folks who had radio background and where they got that right. some of them in the service or using even using surplus gear. I remember the first public radio station I worked at had all strange dimensions in the patch bay because they were using mil spec mm. surplus material. And you couldn't use a standard quarter inch uh, mono jack because it was a different military spec thing. A lot of those folks had that same experience. They came out of radio. Of course, the iconic example mm -hmm. of that is Sam Phillips, and who for whom, at least to hear Peter Goralnik tell it, Radio was always Sam Phillips's first love, and it's always what he went back to. But then you mentioned ham radio folks and electronics repair folks, and that makes me think of both the amp and the guitar builders who had that background. And you know, Leo Fender is is archetypal for that. But Absolutely. you know, Les Paul is like that too. And then you mentioned Bill Hanley, who's up to my embarrassment, I, whose name I didn't know, and about him making the transition or being being able, being willing to make take the sort of intellectual leap of moving from I'm mixing the Newport Jazz Festival, the Newport Folk Festival, now I'm mixing Woodstock. And not only are the sounds coming off the stage differently, which which they are, of course, and the because the aesthetics have shifted. But I also think I, I just thought of this, and again I I didn't know Bill Hanley's name, the degree to which some of the people he was mixing in a rock and roll arena context, where people who themselves had made that shift from the jazz or even more the folk world into the world of electronics. And so in that respect, from what you're describing, Hanley made a transition kind of like what, say, mm -hmm. Jerry Garcia did. When it hadn't occurred to me before, but it's really interesting to think of the engineers coming along in this sort of transitional evolutionary way well, and I think Jerry Garcia is a good person to mention in this regard because the dead probably had the most, um, one of the most fruitful relationships with their sound people of any band that you could think of, right? I mean, their first sound guy was Owsley, 
who of course is better known for manufacturing acid, but he was, he was a serious sound guy. Uh, and the dead put a lot of thought and emphasis into how they wanted to sound when they were on stage. Um, a lot of trial and error. Uh, but you know, the way the dead, for instance, sound like when they had the famous wall of sound, uh, PA system built for them in the seventies. That wasn't Owsley. That was their, uh, next guy, Dan Healy. But, um, that was built really along the lines of something not dissimilar from what I was just describing from Hanley, which is to say it was supposed to be as loud as it could possibly be while still retaining clarity. And that was always the big challenge with live sound was like, you could push it to, in a volume way, but like, how could you push it to where it wasn't going to then completely muddy up everything so that everyone who was listening had a horrible experience? Um, and it took a lot of work to refine both the technology, but you know, just having a bunch of big amps doesn't mean you wind up with good sound. I mean, the, the engineering part of it comes in knowing like how to patch things together and knowing which amp to pair with which set of speakers and those sorts of things that a novice has no idea make as much difference as they actually do. Um, and the industry for making the equipment for that stuff was really just coming into its own. So for the people who were working at the point that like Bill Hanley or Owsley or Dan Healy or any of those guys are doing, they're having to often build their own equipment, you know, so they are definitely like a kind of tinkerer, but they're tinkerers whose work starts to become professionalized because there's this need, you know, people need amps that are going to put out a thousand watts and not just 200. Um, and people are going to need PA systems that are um, able to be broken down into like very particular sorts of components you know, with very directed kind of tweeters and very directed like woofers and, um, you know, and, and you need to have directionality and you need to have the ability to make fine distinctions between the different registers. Um, and you also need to be able to design systems that are going to reach different parts of the audience in a way so that there's a certain amount of consistency which means things like building delay into a system so that the people who are like a hundred feet from the stage don't hear an echo the whole time. Right. All that stuff is like, that's, that's like audio physics, you know, that's engineering. And so that's, and, and I think the musicians are definitely thinking about those problems themselves because, you know, again, it's like the embodied knowledge, like they are aware of it from practice. Um, but they also just, they want to have the best experience for themselves, for one thing, you know, using monitors, right? Like, we take that so much for granted now. Like, there's some debate as to who was the first audio engineer to actually, like, think of putting monitors on the stage for the band. But um, it didn't start to happen much before the mid-60s. Um, there's actually this great moment... Uh, in the Monterey Pop documentary of the Monterey Pop Festival, where the birds are doing like a sound check. And I can't remember if they either are like expressing total surprise at the fact they have monitors or just surprise at the fact that it's a good sound system. But either way, it's kind of amazing. Like you see the birds who are like, you know, one of the biggest rock bands in the world as of 1967, get up on a stage and they're like, hey man, this sounds good. And you can tell that like, the way they're saying it means most of the time it doesn't, you know, that's precisely the transition yeah. that was happening throughout that period. And you only need to contrast that with, uh, the Beatles at the DC Coliseum in 64 right. and the absolute chaos sonically right. that was going on in that room, uh, or a year later at, uh, right. Shea Stadium, which was way better, it's not but really still wasn't better. what, what um, we would expect. To but, you know, so Hanley yeah. did the sound at the Beatles 1966 Shea Stadium show, right? So, again, like the Zelig of, like, mm -hmm. music history, right? He's everywhere. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is where with my newer project, again, it's like so much is just, like, digging into details, right? So, like, 
there's a lot of lore about the Shea Stadium concert. One of one piece of which is that nobody could hear, which is kind of true from what I can tell. Uh, I haven't read a lot of accounts that really contradict that. Of course, I wasn't there, so I can't say except from what I'm able to garner from sources. But, um, but I think one thing people lose sight of is the very basic fact that like Shea Stadium itself was like a year old at the time. So like even having a venue that you would have be that scale that was designed to house something like that is still a fairly new thing. Um, and again, like there's no automatic formula for like this kind of space, this kind of venue has to have this kind of system set up in it in order for it to sound good. I mean, nobody designing Shea, I think even thought of that really, because they were thinking of the sound system as being basically like, the PA was there to allow for announcements between innings and to allow the organ to be heard during take me out to the ball game. Right. That's what a baseball stadium PA was there for. Yeah. And that's what they used at Shea stadium, right? Like yeah. they didn't have a separate PA stadium or PA system for the Beatles at Shea stadium because they didn't think they needed one until they realized that they needed one, you know? So, um, Right. I do think that one of the pieces of that story that gets lost a lot of the times is like the novelty of even having an experience like that. It's not like that was the first ever concert yeah. ever held in a stadium, but there hadn't been enough of them to where people had actually figured out how to troubleshoot all the things that you needed to do to make it a successful event. Well, and that extends to almost every aspect of that event, you know, um, at both events in 64 and 65, they mm. lost control of the box office. They weren't able to restrict people from coming in. They have no idea how many people attended both of those events. Um, there's a really hilarious sequence in the, the Beatles anthology where the Beatles each are given a different mm. number for the Shea Stadium attendance uh, based on their understanding. Um, but we don't know how many people exactly were there because the box office was overrun, which means they didn't have the uh, much security. You remember the famous footage of the cops on the on the on the uh, uh, baseball uh, diamond right. catching this the the fans that were running towards them. Yeah, but as a, I don't think anyone knew how to to mount a concert of that size at that time. Sonically, the guy who promoted it actually, I think, yeah. did a better job with the business side of it than might have been expected. Um, I mean, he actually wrote a memoir, Sid Bernstein. Um, yeah. Of course, it's a pretty self-serving memoir, so you can't necessarily take everything that he says as gospel. But um, he he was, I think, surprisingly organized compared to what a lot of people were who produced comparable events at that time or even later. Like, I mean... For comparison's sake, for instance, uh, well, I mean, for comparison's sake, you could look at Woodstock, right? I mean, Woodstock, which was planned to be a paid event that, you know, w was supposed to have a fence around it so that people would like enter at a certain point and then it would be very controlled in terms of the coming and going and whatever. And, and that pretty much like all fell to pieces before the festival even started. Um, so if you want to like, you know, compare, uh, I think Sid Bernstein like kept more control over the Shea Stadium concert with the Beatles than the Woodstock organizers did. But it's also important, you know, this is again, like one of those things where you can, you know, just paying attention to details, like a stadium is an easier thing to control in general than a big open field that you try to convert into a, a, a live music venue. Um, and that's part of the reason why in the U S for a long time, festivals ultimately wound up getting largely displaced by arena and stadium concerts was, um, the promoters preferred predictability over the kind of, uh, romantic, uh, sense that one was like communing with nature that attached itself to a lot of the festivals, which was great, uh, publicity, but was lousy for business a lot of the time. We're talking with music professor and American studies uh, professor, Steve Waxman from Smith College about music cultures, about music technology, about the history of, of live performance, 
the history of live performance technology, and we're talking about the electric guitar. And I'm curious, I'd like to know, um, Steve, are there perhaps three perceptions about the electric guitar that you would like to shift? Yeah, I mean, there's probably more than three, but I'll I'll try to stick to three. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see what we'll comes take more out than of three. <laughs> um, always a risky proposition, but uh, I would say the first one uh, is a pretty basic one, which is like um, that the the electric guitar is um, a, a guy thing, and you know, like when I think about the work I've done, it's not like I've not and ex accentuated its guy thing aspects. I've tried to think critically about that. So, you know, as I think I was saying earlier, um, with regard to thinking about like a sort of canon of guitarists, like to me, sometimes um, changing a conversation doesn't mean like changing the topic, but it means changing the way you discuss the topic. Uh, and so rather than take the, uh, associations between the electric guitar and masculinity for granted, you ask like, why is this the way it is? Uh, and that's something I've really tried to do, but I, I've also become a lot more aware that, you know, it's, it's really important to also just bring other people into that conversation too, and to feature more female musicians and female voices who are you know, have things to say about the guitar. Um, I mean, I think it's been great in the last couple of decades. I mean, when, when my book came out back in 1999, you didn't have a magazine like she shreds, for instance, right? Like the notion that there was a guitar magazine that was written by women for women was like, you know, that wasn't on the, anyone's radar at the time, but it is now I take no credit for that at all, but it's, it says a lot about how the culture around the guitar has changed. And I, I think that's a necessary change, but I don't think it's gone far enough because certainly in the music communities I live in, playing guitar is still mainly a guy thing. Um, and every female guitarist I've ever talked to has talked about the resistance they have faced at one time or another to being a woman who plays guitar and especially electric guitar. So I think that needs to change. That's one thing. Um, I think another is like, changing the notion that the electric guitar is a white thing. Um, and, and here it's complicated because we know historically that there's like enormous black and other, you know, people of color have made enormous contributions to the guitar and the electric guitar. Um, but in a contemporary sense, I think that the instrument is very much thought of as being predominantly a, a white instrument. And um, in the, um, talk I gave when I came to visit y'all a few years ago, I started with a, a, a kind of funny, but true, too true, um, clip from, uh, Dave Chappelle's show, right? Where he's like walking around with John Mayer, who's playing electric guitar and, and they walk into like a space with white people and all the white people are like, electric guitar is awesome. Yay. And then they walk into like a black barber shop and everybody is like, that's lame. And there was this broad suggestion that like black people aren't into the electric guitar. It's kind of old fashioned and passe. Now, you know, I, I, it's not for me to say black people really like the electric guitar. Like that's somebody else's argument, but it is for me to say that like, you know, really important work being done by African-American artists and other artists of color with the guitar is still very much there to be found. And that that isn't just historical. Um, I mean, it's almost like the sort of musical equivalent of the sort of vanishing Indian myth or something like that. But like once upon a time, blues guitarists roamed the, roamed the landscape, but unfortunately they've become an extinct species. It's just like, no, <laughs> really, that's not true. So I think that's a narrative that needs to dramatically be changed. Um, so, okay, that's two. Uh, what would be number three? Um, I mean, I think that the electric guitar is a rock thing is maybe the last that I would want to change. Uh, and that was something that I, uh, very much like thought about when I was writing my book on the electric guitar, that it would have been really easy to make a history of the electric guitar into a history of rock guitar. And I didn't want 
a book I wrote to be that. And so that was where bringing in people like Charlie Christian and Les Paul and Chet Atkins um, and Muddy Waters was, I mean, Muddy Waters is like, you know, people see that link between rock and blues. So like, that's not so much of a thing, but Les Paul, you know, such an amazingly important figure in the history of the electric guitar. And yet he doesn't fit most people's like narratives of why the electric guitar matters, or at least he didn't at that time. Um, because it wasn't about rebellion. Like he's, he's, you know, he was impish, <laughs> um, and, and had a kind of dry, sarcastic sense of humor, but you know, Les Paul was about like the most mainstream performer you could have found in the 1950s. And the electric guitar was so pivotal to what he did. And he was so pivotal to what that instrument became in so many ways. But then he basically became known as like the guy who was, who there was a guitar named after. And that was basically what people knew about him. Um, and I think still today, like the electric guitar's influence has been so wide ranging. And it's often like, present even when we don't realize it you know uh it's part of a texture of so many different types of music where it's like not the thing that draws your most attention but without it you wouldn't hear the same thing the same way so i think that's another thing is like that the electric guitar has a, a, a value musically that goes way beyond its value as a sort of vehicle for rock guitar shredding and virtuosity in that context Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it makes me think that there's a whole additional world of electric guitar experience for us to revisit at another time on another occasion as the instrument has traveled outward and around the world. We've had previous episodes of the podcast where Roger and I or guests have spoken about instruments that begin one place and then get borrowed, transported, borrowed, adopted, adapted, appropriated reconceived into other idioms with free reeds, accordions, and guitars and mandolins. But the electric guitar is certainly another example of that. And uh, it occurs to me that that might be an opportunity for us to have you back on the podcast when the new book about live sound appears, you know, when at, at, what's, at such time as that appears. Because I think there is a whole additional series of spheres of experience around the electric guitar way outside the Anglo-American mainstream. And that becomes part of these larger conversations that we do have in the podcast. Before we have to wrap up, I do want to make sure to um, acknowledge uh, a particular uh, locus of electric guitar energy that uh, occurred and recurs through Texas Tech University. Uh, I'll share with listeners who may not know that Roger and the Vernacular Music Center are originators of the biennial The Electric Guitar in American Culture Conference, which happens every two years. And Steve's been the keynote speaker at, at the EGAC concert, as we describe it. And actually, his keynote speech uh, on that occasion, uh, the, the, the time that he spoke for us, is very much about this realization that the electric guitar is uh, appears in the foreground or in the background of a much wider range of music. Specifically, Steve spoke about black pop music in the 21st century. So Roger, maybe you would just summarize for listeners just briefly, what are the goals of the EGAC conference? And then Steve, you can maybe speak to where the EGAC conference might interact with the kind of work that you're doing and the, the new stories that you want to tell. So maybe Roger and then Steve. Sure. Well, Steve and I met uh, a number of years ago. I think it was about six years ago. We met at the what was the first um, academic conference on the electric guitar, which is astonishing uh, factoid in itself um, that in 20, it took to 2015 for the for that to happen. And we were both hosted by um, it was the uh, University of Bowling Green, Ohio, um, hosted that conference and uh we, we got to know one another. And then a couple of years later, I got in touch with the organizers and to see if they were going to continue. And they said, no, that was a one-off for us. And I said, well, I'm kind of thinking of doing one. And they said, we'll take it and run with it. And, uh, and so then, uh, it just seemed natural to invite Steve to come and, uh, give the keynote at the first one, the first EGAC, which was in, uh, 
2018. And unfortunately, the second one would have been in 2020, which we weren't able to, to hold because of the COVID pandemic. So the second one will actually be in the fall of 2022, uh, a little over a year from I now. I had a great time at the first one. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, tell so us. as you say, Roger, it's it's been kind of striking at how long it's taken for there to be this kind of organized activity around electric guitar scholarship. There was one conference back in the 90s. It was actually before I was even really on the scene. It was at the Smithsonian. Um, and I think the main person who pulled it together was a guy named Andre Millard, who has done a lot of work on music technology in, a, in the U.S. Um, and it had some good speakers. It was just a day long, like symposium type thing. I've, I've kind of gone and looked at the program because I've just been curious, like, what did they do there? Um, but, you know, for like a more kind of full fledged conference, I do think the Bowling Green one really set the motion running. And as I think I probably told you when I came to Lubbock, um, I also had in the interim gone to another electric guitar conference that was held in Paris. So, there are now been at least three, um, and it's been great to see the different kinds of work that people are doing. Um, I think that there are some very different ways of doing work on the electric guitar that have been um, gathering momentum. And sometimes, as happens when there's a new field, it's a little hard making them all speak to each other. So, um, for instance, the Paris conference I went to was really driven more by people who were working on music technology and and people who were composers or electronic music people who who were thinking about electronics as technology and, and about sound and timbre. So a lot of the stuff there was very technical, um, whereas your conference and also the one in Bowling Green were more about the kind of cultural aspect of the guitar. Uh, there was some theoretical work, like music theoretical work, but it wasn't like the driving thing. Um, you know, I think it, as those of us who are music academics know, finding the place where like the music theory people and the music history people talk to each other is often a challenge. Um, I don't know that that has to happen for the Electric Guitar and American Culture Conference because it is in fact called the Amer American the in American culture part seems really crucial. It sort of implies taking more of a cultural analytical lens to the instrument, which is definitely my comfort zone. And what I think is, you know, leads to some of the more um, compelling insights about the instrument. Um, I think it would be great to be able to bring in more people who could reflect more on the global aspect of the guitar um, there's not as much work done on that as there should be. And, and, you know, I, I would love to know more of that work myself, um, for this Cambridge companion to the electric guitar that I'll be editing. Um, we've got somebody contributing on Southeast Asian electric guitar stuff, which I don't think there's really anything written about. So I was really excited to have somebody who was capable of doing that. And we have somebody who's going to do some stuff on the electric guitar in the Caribbean, which is Again, not something that I think anybody's really done much published work on. So we'll, we'll be shedding light on a couple of areas that are really not well documented, but there's so much more. Um, I also think like one area where I'd, I think um, it'd be great to see more conversation on a different level is between looking at the guitar as a technology and then looking at the guitar, you know, as more, more for like what it does musically, right? Because I think people often get very caught up in one or the other side of those things. Um, and from what I recall, the, the EGAC conferences, I think you called it, um, there was a lot more focus on like people playing the guitar uh, and less on like the development of the guitar. There were a few good papers on the development, like, you know, material development, technological development, but I think there's room to have more of that. And what I would especially like to see and this isn't just for the, your conference, but this is just for work on the guitar is looking at more of the material development of the guitar outside of the U.S. and England. You know, like I, I want somebody to write like that perfect piece on like the Japanese guitar industry, for instance. Right. It's huge. It's been huge for decades. And there's like nothing. And, and when it's talked about in like books that mostly focus around the U.S., it's talked about so dismissively. 
as like Japanese guitar industry is just a big copycat industry and they make junk guitars or second rate. And it's like, there's way more complicated of a story to tell there. That's just one small example. You know, I, I mean, where are African guitarists getting all their guitars from? Is there an, I, I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to. Is there an indigenous African guitar industry? If so, I want to know about it. If not, I want to know who's importing them. Like those are the kinds of questions I think we need to be asking a lot more that so far I've seen very little commentary on anywhere. That's great. And it certainly provides us with uh, a mandate from one of the preeminent scholars of the electric guitar for how we might think about the EGAC conference going forward. We're near to the end of our time to speak with Steve Waxman today. It's been great, but obviously, Steve, there's more to be said, and we hope that you will come back and guest on the podcast again. I'd be happy to. This was, this was a lot of fun. That's great. Uh, so just on, on my behalf, I'll say on behalf of the Voices from the Vernacular Music Center podcast, thanks so much, Steve. And uh, we appreciate your insights. And it's always great to hang out with you. Thanks, Steve. Uh, we hope to have you as a guest again. And we hope to see you at the next Electric Guitar and American Culture Conference. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video, and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Special thanks to our podcast guest, Steve Waxman. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stocker. And our VVMC Administrative Coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. Special thanks to our podcast consultant SeedPod Productions at seedpodmedia.com. This episode is offered in memory of the groundbreaking electric slide guitarist Ellen McElwain. We'll see you next time.